If you have your Bibles, I'd like to encourage you to join me in Exodus chapter 20. Deep into the Old Testament. I do understand that when we dig into topics like the Ten Commandments, it takes a little effort, and that's okay. We work a little slower, and that's all right, because we are trying to deepen our understanding of who God is, and ultimately, that is what Scripture declares, who God is. And when we read the Ten Commandments, though it seems to us like a list of rules, we are learning a lot about who God is. And when we learn about who God is and we see God as we should see him, it helps straighten out our view of ourselves, and it gives us understanding for the world in which we live. Our world is changing rapidly, or so it would seem. I think it tends to be more of the same as it has always been, but we gain clearer understanding about how to navigate our way and the impact we can have in our world by understanding truths just like this one. In 1963, I think the dinosaurs were still around then, The Supreme Court of the United States decided that reading the Bible and reciting the Lord's Prayer in public schools violated the Constitution. Then in 1980, the same Supreme Court ruled that it is unconstitutional for public schools to post the Ten Commandments on classroom walls. And the court's five to four majority decision reasoned in this way. If the posted copies of the Ten Commandments are to have any effect at all, it will be to induce the school children to read, meditate upon, perhaps to venerate and obey the commandments. However desirable this might be as a matter of private devotion, it is not permissible in the state as our objective under the Establishment Clause lays out." So their reason for removing the Ten Commandments was this. We don't want to post them because some students might read them and obey them, and we can't have that. Christians like us rightly decry the immorality and the violence that exists in our world. And yet statistics say that the average Christian cannot name half of the Ten Commandments. In part, I think that's due to a misunderstanding of the application of God's grace. We have convinced ourselves that we don't have to obey anything that God says because after all, we have grace and if we mess up, he will forgive us and certainly that is true. But we have already set the context of the delivery of the Ten Commandments in this way. In Exodus 19, God has made it clear to the listeners in Exodus 20 that he delivered them from bondage in Egypt. That is exceptional grace, that is mercy. He bore them up on eagles' wings and he brought them unto himself and now he wants to introduce himself as it were to them. These commandments are delivered from a place of love. But not only that, we also noted that the mount was a smoke and the smoke was ascending up and there was fire that was evidently there. And if anyone were to touch the mountain, they were to be put to death. This is severe instruction from God. The people heard the blast of the trumpet and they heard the voice and they trembled. And even Moses himself did not stride up in real confidence, but he quaked. 
And so we have to realize that though these commandments are given from a place of love, we do so with fear and reverence for who God is. We cannot just assume we don't need to know anything about what God expects because after all, we can confess and he'll forgive. The Apostle Paul addressed this very thing. He was writing to the believers in Rome and he said this in Romans 6.1, what shall we say then? That's a question. You see that question mark? Say, pastor, we're smart enough to know that's a question. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? I mean, grace is there, so we just sin so that grace can abound. He answers and says, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So we should understand what God's expectations are. Now, I want to be very careful because we hear these as God's rules. And I'm not saying to you, if I follow the rules, God will love me and save me. After all, that's not even what happened here in the story in Exodus. The Israelites were oppressed people and God said, I hear your cry, I will save you, I will deliver you, I love you, I bring you unto myself, and now that you are free, I'm going to give you a new way to live. Salvation is not a reward for our obedience, salvation is the reason for our obedience, Jesus does not say in the New Testament, if you obey my commandments, I will love you. But instead, Jesus says in John 14, 15, if ye love me, keep my commandments. All of our doing is because of what he has first done for us. But we must understand all of the scripture, and certainly this is pivotal foundational scripture. And I want to direct your attention here in Exodus 20. I'll begin reading in verse 1, and we'll arrive at the first commandment in verse 3. And here's what we read. And God spake all these words, saying, "Thou art, sorry, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. God is the one speaking, reminding them that he delivered them, and then he communicates this commandment, the first one, thou shalt have no other gods before me, and man did Israel struggle with this commandment. Historically, we even understand that the children of Israel had just been delivered from the nation of Egypt. They had been immersed in a polytheistic culture. I do that to show off sometimes. It doesn't work. Nobody's impressed. I get it. Polytheism is simply the worship of many gods, and the Egyptians were unsurpassed in their worship of many gods. They worshiped gods of the fields and rivers and light and darkness and sun and storm and love and war. Their gods had the form of humans and beasts, all kinds of things. And the Israelites, inevitably, over their centuries of bondage, had given into the temptation of worshiping these strange gods. That's what the Bible would say of them. They're strange gods. Not peculiar, they're strange in that they are foreign from the true God. The children of Israel had been pressured by years of bondage and, and they had been saturated in a nation that worshipped many gods and inevitably, and we'll see it established, they had begun to worship those gods. 
We also have to understand that Pharaoh was seen as the embodiment of deity. So it was quite audacious for Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, our God, the true God, is telling you the perceived embodiment of deity to let us go. Now you understand a little bit why Pharaoh might look at Moses and say, I have never heard of your God. I don't care about your God. I am the king of kings. That would have been one of his names. I am the conqueror of lands. I can't be swayed by a God who would allow his people to live in bondage for centuries. Why would I, Pharaoh, care about your God? I think that's an interesting thought. God's messaging to Israel isn't swayed by what Pharaoh thinks of him. In fact, we begin to hear what I think is the root of this first commandment back in Exodus chapter 6. Now, God is beginning to outline his plan, and the children of Israel will exit the land of Egypt. Listen to God in this conversation from Exodus 6. Say unto the children of Israel, here's the introduction I want you to give to the children of Israel. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. And I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God, and ye shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you in unto the land concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And I will give it to you for inheritance. Listen to how he ends this. I am the Lord. When God communicates that messaging to the nation of Israel and that messaging to the powers that be in Egypt is his opinion of himself swayed by Pharaoh's thought process. Not at all. God is saying to Moses, I am going to make it clear that I am the Lord. Many judgments, those 10 plagues, are going to take place and it is going to be evident that I am the true God and these strange gods are impotent And they have no sway. I don't know if you've ever studied it out. It is an intriguing study. The ten plagues are actually spiritual warfare. It is the true God of Israel showing his might and his power and his prowess over the false gods of Egypt. The ten plagues are miraculous. God shows himself powerful over creation. And in each and every one of them, he is defeating a God that the Egyptians worshipped. There's clear evidence that it was spiritual battle. Even in Exodus chapter 7 and verse 1, the Lord said unto Moses, See, I have made thee a god unto Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother, he's your prophet. That's how Pharaoh views you. Pharaoh knows this is spiritual warfare. Pharaoh will come to respect me as God. Now it's going to take a whole lot of plagues to get there. And at the 10th plague, he's going to push them out and the Lord will harden his heart and his armies will chase them. And that's where the Red Sea comes in. We could get all the way to the end of the Bible, but we're not going to do that. Moses has been introduced to God as he is. In a culture steeped in polytheism, God is declaring his nature. He will show himself to be who he said he was, 
by the 10 plagues. He will defeat the strange gods of Egypt. He will part the Red Sea. He will provide for the Israelites sustenance and water. He will bring them unto himself. And now he turns to them and he declares unto them, I'm the Lord your God. And Israel will always struggle with this. In fact, all the way back to Genesis chapter 31, when Jacob and Rachel were running from the presence of his father-in-law Laban, found in their household goods, Rachel, his wife, had brought with her the household gods of Laban's. Just a few chapters from where we are here in Exodus 20. By the time we get to Exodus 31 and 32, Aaron the prophet, as it were, of Moses, is going to fashion a golden calf and he will literally have the audacity to say to the children of Israel, this is the God which brought you out of Egypt. This is so necessary for the children of Israel to hear. The reality is, even Joshua himself Fast forward to the settling of the promised land. As Joshua is winding up his leadership of the children of Israel, he gives a speech that I know you are familiar with. He says this, And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve. If you're not going to serve the Lord, who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood? Or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. As for me and my house, we will serve the true Lord. He's saying, if you are not going to serve the true Lord, I guess you have some options. You can serve the strange gods from before the flood, or you can serve the strange gods of the Amorites. As for me and for my house, we will serve the true God. Now, get this historical setting. Jacob, patriarchal, leaving, strange gods are in his house. God has done the 10 plagues. He has parted the Red Sea. He has provided for the children of Israel. And by Exodus 31, in the presence of God, Aaron is going to make a golden calf and declare publicly, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. Now, history has passed and the nation has settled in the promised land and Joshua is wrapping up his leadership. And in his speech, they are still struggling with idolatry. So much so that the children of Israel in verse 19 are responding as Joshua says, you can't serve the Lord for he is a holy God and a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins if ye forsake the Lord and serve strange gods. Then he will turn and do you hurt and consume you. So the people say, no, no, no. We don't want strange gods. We will serve the Lord. Now I need you to just listen in to verse 23 of of. Joshua's speech there in 24, he says, okay, if you're going to serve the Lord, now therefore put away, said he, the strange gods which are among you and incline your heart unto the Lord God of Israel. Still, they are wrestling with this. Like family heirlooms that had been passed down from the time in Egypt, strange gods are still literally in the tents of the children of Israel. When God outlines this mandate, it was not a one-and-done thing. This was a legitimate struggle for the children of Israel. Isaiah and Jeremiah, they're major prophets in the Old Testament. They address this issue within the nation. This was a very real struggle Now, our propensity is to think, isn't that great? That antiquated struggle that they had with idols. Thankfully, we don't have that. I have looked in my mind as I've sat here through every room in our house. We have no strange gods in there. Good. But can I help you understand that it's our struggle too? We exist as believers 
to glorify God. We exist as believers to worship him. We cannot exchange the glory of God for any lesser thing. Jesus was being questioned by a lawyer in the New Testament. And he responded in this way in Matthew 22, 36. A lawyer says to him, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. Does Jesus sound confused or does he have a ready answer for that lawyer's question? Immediately he says, and there's no gray area, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, love the Lord your God. This is the first, this is the great commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. What that communicates to us is our heart as believers must be completely turned over to God. We cannot give it to our spouse We can't give it to our children. We can't give it to money or pleasure or fame. Nothing can hold the supreme position in our hearts other than God according to this command. And all sin flows from a lack of adherence to this command. When you see the world that we live in and you are aghast at the violence and the immorality which is certainly and visibly rampant as believers in the word, we tend to wring our hands when in reality we should simply see it as the natural inevitable outcome of rejecting the truth of God for who he is. In Romans chapter 1, and that chapter in scripture correlates a lot with the commandments and even a lot to early Genesis, the Apostle Paul is writing his introduction in his letter to the believers at Rome, and here's what he says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. People see it. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And hear this in verse 23. And changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Idolatry. It is the natural inevitable outcome of the rejection of God for who he is. In fact, he's going to come back in the very next verse and he's going to begin talking to them about no graven images. Don't make me into your image. You cannot make me into an image based on your imagination. I will tell you who I am. In verse 21, it's clear, even though they were aware of God, they refused to honor him. What is clear is the only one who can give God true glory is the individual who has a right opinion of God. An unbeliever is an individual who refuses to give God glory for who he is because they do not have a right opinion of him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the Bible teaches us. And our world cannot come to grips with that. 
This is a very real struggle in our time. You say, Pastor, this is a Sunday morning. I feel like I'm working way too hard in Old Testament liturgy. We are. But what we have to come to terms with is what is being declared is relevant for us because what is mandated is we have to give glory to God alone and there is no other place that can be. Before we learn anything else about what God demands... We have to understand who he is and we have to grasp who we are in relationship to him. In essence, that command is saying this. Let's get this straight. I am the one and only God. Since I am the only God, I refuse to share my worship with anyone or anything else. I will not share the stage with any other performer. I refuse to have any colleagues. I will not even acknowledge that I have a rival. God does not simply lay claim to one part of our life in worship. He demands that we dedicate all that we are completely and wholly to him. You say, well, that sounds like quite a demand. But we have already said our God is a jealous God, not in the petulant sense and the holy to be revered sense. It is a severe expectation, and we have to grasp that first, it assumes that we believe in God. That's what he said in verse 1, and God spake all these words, saying, it assumes that we are believing in God before we get to verse 3, which means this is communicated to believers. Now, it also assumes that we grasp the preeminence of God. In verse 2, he says, I am the Lord thy God. No doubt about it. I am Yahweh. I am Elohim. I am preeminent. It sets our view of God right. God is not our servant. God is in charge. We are not. God is not giving us rules and delivering these commands because he's some killjoy who wants to make our life miserable. We do a good enough job of that ourselves. God is not far removed. He's not distant from our lives. But neither is he a doting grandparent patting us on the head waiting to do our bidding. He's not just Mr. Fix-It. There is the preeminence of God. He is Elohim. He is Yahweh. And it's the power of God. He says, in case you forget, verse verse 3, I brought you out of the land of bondage and out of the house of bondage, and so thou shalt have no other gods before me. I lay a claim on you because I delivered you. And in the New Testament, we grasp that Jesus Christ is our Savior. And if we have named Jesus Christ as our Savior, then he has all the rights on our lives. You now belong to him, and he has provided so much for you that you respond in obedience. That's what is being communicated. The preeminence of God, the power of God, the priority of God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Have you ever been angry And you said to somebody, get out of my face. You ever said that to anybody? Oh, yeah. Kids. A lot of kids. Hands up. A couple honest people. Everybody else was raised in like a Baptist home. They're like, not me. We didn't talk like that. Yeah, most Baptists sin in secret. It's just as bad. I'll tell you. You should know. It's just as bad. Get out of my face. I don't want you in my face. Get out of my face. If you understand what is being spoken, thou shalt have no other gods before me in the Hebrew, it could be understood. Thou shalt have no other gods in my face. 
I don't want any other gods in my face. I don't want any other thing in your life rising up in my face. This is about the priority of God in our lives. Again, don't get past the context. You've been submerged in 400 years of polytheistic culture. I know that these strange gods are in your tents. I know that you're going to build this calf. I need you to know that I am the Lord your God and nobody else can rise up to get in my face. You must see me for who I am. How can I know whether or not I actually have idolatry in my life, that I have had something rise up into the face of God? Two simple tests. Number one, the love test. The love test. It's simply this. What do you love? Origen said this, What each one honors before all else, what before all things he admires and loves, this for him is God. So what do you love? What do you desire? Here's here's a way to think about it. When your mind is free to roam, what do you think about? Other than retirement and vacation and independent wealth, where you can freely say to people, get out of my face, and they can't hurt you nor harm you, because you can get on your plane and fly anywhere you want in the world. That might indicate a little of my need to hear this message. What do you desire? What do you love? When your mind's free to roam, what do you think about? How do you spend your money? What do you get excited about? You see, a false god can be even a good thing if the good thing exists in exclusion to God. We cannot allow anything to replace our affection for God. You say, so we have to be total church-living, church-going weirdos. No, we have to, on the inside, always know that we love him preeminently. Nothing can rise up in his face based on our love. Here's a second test. What do you trust? The trust test. What do you trust? Where do you turn in times of trouble? When the heat is on, when anxiety is there, when the pressure's on, what do you fall back on? Martin Luther said this, whatever thy heart clings to and relies upon, that is properly thy God. Thomas Watson, who was a Puritan, he said to trust in anything more than God is to make it a God. In the Old Testament, again, when God was outlining the rules for the nation of Israel, his covenant people, he began to discuss what they should do if they had a king because he knew they would eventually have a king. And he said, a king shall not multiply horses unto himself and don't go to Egypt for help. Basically, he is saying to them, what you must always keep first and foremost in your mind is you do not trust in chariots and you do not trust in horses and you do not trust in implements of war and you don't trust in some ally that you deem is powerful. Your trust should always be in me. Here's a question to answer whether you are battling this or not. What do you fall back on? You know, some people trust their addictions. It's obvious and evident when they're in trouble, when they're lonely, when they're discouraged, they fall back on some addiction, whatever it may be, to pull them through. 
Other people trust in things that are good in and of themselves, but that nevertheless have a way of replacing our trust, our confidence in God. Some people trust their jobs. If I lost my job, I don't know what I would do. Their insurance policies. Maybe it's a pension plan or it's a retirement. And, and, and that's making you nervous right now with the S&P starting out 2022, Right? I feel less stable than I used to. Why? Has God changed? No, but my 401k has. Where do we put our trust? Some people, this is in my notes, I I chuckle a little when I say it. Some put their faith in the government. See, that's the best joke I've had all day. Some people put their faith or their trust in the soundness of the economy. Some people trust in their family. Their family structure and their family dynamic is their end all and their be all. They trust in their social position. Some people trust in their own self-righteousness and they have to always be the most extreme and they have to be always the most right and they have to always be perceived as the furthest over and the holiest. They're trusting in a hundred things and some of these are good things and some of these are even things that God uses to provide for us and to care for us. But if any one of them become our fallback, we have thrown something up in the face of God. And I'm not saying that here in 2022, we live under the rule of the law. We established that last week. We are free in Christ from the law. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit, but it does not change that God is declaring who he is, and it does not change his expectation that we grasp that whether therefore we eat or drink Or whatsoever we do, we do all to the glory of God. So the question remains, so how can I give God glory? I get it. I want to do this. I sense that you're in teaching mode. So teach me some practical things. Help me. Let's just take a walk. How can I then glorify God? Well, how about this? What if I accept and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord? Philippians chapter 2 and verse 11 says this, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Accepting Jesus Christ is my surrendering to God on his terms. It is submitting to God and his plan, his way of salvation. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Accepting Jesus Christ as Savior glorifies God in heaven. Acknowledging Jesus Christ as Lord glorifies God in heaven. How about admitting your sin? Maybe not your sin, but my sin. There's probably not a lot of sinners in here. Joshua was dealing with a problem within the camp of Israel while they were fighting their way through the promised land. You're probably familiar with the walls of Jericho that came tumbling down and the defeat of the little village of Ai. And the defeat by the people in Ai, I don't know what to call them, Aians, those people, was because there was sin in the camp. A man named Achan had stolen from Jericho when God had said, don't take anything. It's cursed. Don't take it. So Joshua, in straightening out this situation, says this to Achan, my son, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel And make confession unto him. Do you realize that we glorify God in heaven when we confess to him? 
The Bible tells us in the New Testament that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when we take him at his word, we glorify him. How about this one? By trusting him with our lives. The Apostle Paul is writing to the believers in Rome in Romans chapter 4, and he is using Abraham's life as an illustration. And when speaking of Abraham, he says this of him in Romans 4.20. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. So the reverse of that is when I am weak in faith, I am taking glory from God. When I am strong in faith, believing that he can sustain me, and he can uphold me, I am giving him glory. When you really begin to unpack this on a practical level, you see how faulty we truly can be. How about this one? By praising him with your voice. Your voice. I'm not sure I glorify God with my voice, but yours. One of my favorite verses to read, especially on a Sunday morning early, is let the saints be joyful in glory Let them sing aloud upon their beds. And I think we can twist this that it's okay to sleep in on Sunday morning. That's still glorifying God. As long as we sing loudly upon our beds. I'm going to teach that in junior church to every one of your kids. (laughs) Sing loudly from your bed early in the morning. It brings glory to God. He will love you. That's twisted. How about we pray for his will to be done? Surrendering our will and praying for his will to be done. Listen, when we murmur and complain like the children of Israel did, we are stripping from God his glory because we are looking at him and saying, you aren't doing the right thing. You aren't giving me good things. I deserve better than what you are giving me. What if we just submit and pray for his will to be done? Listen to John 14, 13. Jesus speaking, he said, whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. What about serving each other? Using your spiritual gift in a practical way to serve. Peter, in his letter, writes this in 1 Peter 4 and verse 10. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as the ability which God giveth. That God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom we praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If we use the gifts that God has given us in service, we are glorifying God in heaven. What about preaching and teaching the word? Paul asked for people to pray for him. He said, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. What about winning other people to Jesus Christ? What about living a pure life? Say, living a pure life honors God? Listen to 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price? Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. These are practical ways that we can give God glory. We can certainly distract or detract from him. These are practical things that we can do. What about bearing spiritual fruit? 
Letting the fruits of the Spirit be evident in us. In John 15, 8, Jesus said, Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. It's not like we don't know how to bring God glory. It's just a matter of what do we love and what do we trust. Now, all of these things that I'm listing to you, these are not natural things that we do. This is by the Holy Spirit. That we enact these things. Listen, when we get into the Ten Commandments, it takes a little work. It takes a little effort to set the context, to grasp some of the history, to put ourselves there so that we can learn from it. We know that we are free from the law. We don't have to maintain the law in order to attain salvation. We have salvation through the shed blood of Jesus Christ alone. But we cannot deny that God is declaring himself to his people. And what he expects, old and new, is that the first and great commandment is that we love the Lord with all our strength, with all our soul, with all our mind, nothing taking away from him. And the simple questions are these. What do you love? Who do you trust? And what are you doing to bring God glory? Would you please bow your heads for just a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.